We are today in uh, actually just the very end of Romans 3 because, surprise, surprise, we didn't finish that passage uh, last week. But uh, uh, so I wanted to look a little bit at the end of chapter 3 and go on into chapter 4, which is really uh, not a problem because beginning in chapter 20, uh, uh, verse 27 of chapter 3 is really the beginning of another section that goes on into chapter 4. So really, those last uh, uh, five verses of chapter 3 really are part of the argument that he's beginning to make in chapter 4. So they really all flow together. And last week we did verses 27 and 28. uh, And that's all we could handle. Uh, So today I want to look at beginning in verse 29 of chapter 3. And, and get as far as we can in down through about verse 8 of chapter 4. So we'll see how far we manage to get. But let's read the passage uh, beginning in verse 27 and uh, try to remember some of the things we talked about and then we'll kind of review that for a few minutes before we go on. But beginning in chapter 3, verse 27, he says, Where then is boasting? Is, uh, it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Okay? Well, last week again we looked at verses 27 and 28. What are some of the things you remember we talked about in those verses? Okay. Uh, how did we decide that? And why is that important? That's from, uh, uh, verse 28. Okay. He makes a very clear distinction between faith and works. And why do, uh, why do we need to harp on that? Why do we need to make a point out of that? Okay. 
and in reality, work for Paul is a meritorious thing. Okay, okay. And so it is not a neutral thing. Faith is neutral, and it is a completely separate thing. It's apples and oranges, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why is faith not a work? I mean, we had our remember we had our little diagram up here, you know. Believe is something you do, and do is a deed, and deed is a work, right? Remember, you know, it all seems so logical. And then I said it doesn't work. No pun intended. You know why? Why is faith not a work? What is it about faith that makes it not a work? Okay. What is the merit of faith? What makes faith work? No pun intended again. <laughs> what makes faith efficacious? It's the object of the faith. Yeah. So it's not that I believe. It's who. It's the one in whom I believe that that makes my faith efficacious for justification or salvation. Okay. And so it's it's very important for us to understand this distinction that uh, that faith is not a work because otherwise we can begin to think that that somehow in my believing I'm doing something that merits God's favor, which just brings me whole right back to the whole work salvation thing again, right? So it's not my believing that kind of that God just goes, oh, you know, well. You know, finally he's believed he's done kind of that ultimate work. It's not that. But rather that I have just cast myself in complete dependence on him. We're going to talk a lot about more about this because Paul harps on this whole idea of faith not being a work. And we're going to talk more about it today and we'll talk about it as we go on through chapter 4. What else did we talk about last week? Remember, it's talking about the kind of the fine line that Paul is trying to walk here. Remember, we said walk, Paul's Paul's kind of walking upon. Do you remember what that was? Okay. Okay. And so, as Paul is trying to lay out the theology here of the gospel, he he wants them to understand. Uh, well, as I put it last week, he's walking a fine line between synergism and continuity. He's walking the line between trying to help people understand that the, that you don't just blend the old the old Judaism and Christianity together and just kind of come up with this kind of synergistic you know, kind of amalgamation of the two. So he wants them to see the clear distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He wants them to see that and understand that there are clear distinctions. But on the other hand, he wants them to see the continuity. He wants them to see that that this whole New Covenant is rooted and grounded in the things that the Old Covenant was pointing to. And... Uh, so, so he's kind of walking a fine line there. He wants to draw a clear distinction and yet maintain the continuity. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he'll be doing all the way through chapter 4. What else? 
Great. Last night, Ginger and I got to go to a deal. Uh, there, there was a, uh, some of y'all might be aware, there's a deal sponsored by the Catholics back in the summer to stand up against the health mandate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the guys in Christian Lucas Society was in on that and got to get a couple of speakers running with one of the speakers at the time. Anyway, they got together last night, kind of a leadership group, and invited us to their house. And we I just have to say that many devout Catholics that I consider, you know, less suspicious of them than their brothers and sisters in Christ. They really are devout. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, the guy that owned the home was a cardiologist who said, I'm going to take it to my man cave. Three or four of us we were talking about what we read. He had this room that had this big books, theology, and uh, it's Catholic oriented. A lot of them were the same books we read. Yeah. He pulled up a book, and this one I'm reading, it was about. Paul, we are finishing chapter three today. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's encouraging to hear. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the other things we did talk about last week, uh, then, of course, this whole idea of boasting. That's the question that comes up. The question is, where then is boasting? Of course, we pointed out that nobody's really going to ask that question outright. Paul's kind of putting that question in the mouth of his opponent there, but nobody is ever going to just kind of come right out and say, well, I want to boast. Do do I get a boast under this system? We would never say that, of course, but that's really what we're thinking. We just instinctively want to be able to take credit for the things that happen in our life. We just instinctively want to do that. And so Paul's saying, no, boasting is excluded. And it's not excluded by a principle of works. He uses the word law there, but the idea where he's using the word law there, the idea is the idea of principle as opposed to the idea of the Mosaic law. So he says it's not by this principle of works, which is how we just instinctively think. That's not how boasting is excluded, but it's excluded by this principle of faith. Okay, which he's going to go on and he's going to give us just a grand illustration of that as we get into chapter 4. So this whole idea of boasting is one of the things that he's talking about and he'll pick it up again in chapter 4. Uh, so, so now we go on. Uh, we, we got through verses 27 and 28 uh, and then we, just, we really didn't have time to touch on 29 through 31. But the idea there in beginning in 29, he says, for we maintain, excuse me, uh, or, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And what Paul has been arguing, what Paul has been arguing is after having shown in the previous couple chapters that all men are sinners, that all men are under the wrath of God. His argument is, since we're all sinners, we all have to be saved the same way. We all need this justification by faith. We can't do it by our works. Okay. So, so what Paul is arguing here is this idea of justification by faith 
is rooted in two principles. And the first principle is the universality of man's sin. Okay? And that's what we've been talking about for so long now as we've been going through Romans. Is that we're all sinners and because we're all sinners, this is the only answer for all of us. Every single one of us has the same predicament. So there's really only one answer and that's justification by faith. Okay. Now he gives us another reason why justification is the answer for all people. Okay. The first reason is because we are all sinners. The second reason is because God is one. There is only one God. And He is God of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's the God of the Jew and He's the God of the Gentile. And the Jews actually had a, a thing that they say, they still do this, and they do it several times a day, if a devout Jew will, is they have this, uh, uh, I don't know how you say it, schema or shema that they say uh, in, incorporate into their prayers and they do it daily. And, and, uh, and the shema is, uh, uh, Hear, O Israel, it comes from Deuteronomy and it's a verse out of the book of Deuteronomy and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they say this over and over and over again. This is a big thing to the Jews, that God is one. So when Paul here at the end of chapter 3 begins to talk about this oneness of God, he's really identifying with the Jews. He's identifying with their whole concept and mentality about God, that God is one. The only problem is they kind of looked at it in kind of a funny way. Because they recognize that God is one. There is only one God. And they're really big on emphasizing that. So, he, so, the, so they know that God is not only their God, but the God of the Gentiles as well. But they kind of do kind of a little sleight of hand with that. And they go, well, he's God of the Gentiles in that he's created them. He's made them. He's, he's the creator and he, so he's made all the peoples of the earth and he's their God in the sense that he's going to judge them and he's going to send them to hell. And he's our God too, but, but we're special to him. We are special because we are the descendants of Abraham. So we're, we're special because of our descent, because of our, because of our position, if you will, we're special. And we're also special because we have the law. And God has given us the law. And so we keep the law. And so, so, yes, there is one God. But he deals with us differently. And we're kind of over here in this special class. okay? And everybody else, he's their God and they're accountable to him and he's going to judge them. But us, you know, he kind of favors us and we're kind of special. What Paul is doing is he's going back to this idea that God is one and he's saying if there really is a one God, if there is one God for the Gentile and one God for the Jew, then salvation will come the same way to both. God is not partial. There is no partiality with God. And so his argument is just quite simply, listen, you say God is one, then you can't, if you believe that God is one, if you believe He's the same God of the Jew as He is of the Gentile, if you believe that, then you have to understand that the way man is reconciled to that God, whether he's Jew or Gentile, is the same. 
And as I was thinking about that principle at work, and of course we see how you know it's very easy for us to be critical of the Jews and the, their kind of little attitude of being kind of special, but that's pretty common feature of human nature, isn't it? We tend to kind of think of ourselves as special. We like to think of ourselves as special. And we like to think that God has kind of specially blessed us or has some kind of special thing with us, more so than He does other people, perhaps. Now, we wouldn't maybe say it in such crass terms, but we really do think that way. What are some of the ways that we think of ourselves as special in relationship to others? Okay. Yeah. Simple things like that. You just uh, in, a, in a work situation, you tend to kind of think of yourself as superior. I just, you know, I think about how oftentimes how many people on their jobs think that they're kind of the best there is at their job. And I'm going, no, everybody can't be the best. <laughs> There's some people out there who are actually the worst at their job, and yet they tend to think they're the best. Okay, so that's one way we do it. My degree is better than your degree. Okay, okay. So kind of a pull and rank type of thing with with uh, our, with our degree or our occupation. You know, uh, as I, some guy pointed out in the book one time that we we tend to esteem those. Were you going to say something, Tom? Were you waving your hand at me? Oh. My mom told me I was Oh, okay. There you go. There you go. Well, that's that's probably where you were first misled was by her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but somebody once said in a book said said that in our culture we tend to esteem those who take their shower before they go to work more than those who take their shower after they come home from work. You know, meaning, you know, the, the, those of us who work the dirty jobs, you know, tend to, uh, sometimes in, in society, we tend to be looked down upon more than those of us who, who uh, get cleaned up before we go to work, you know, because we're going to be uh, working in an office or, or whatever. You know. But anyway, we have these various ways that we, we tend to we tend to think well of ourselves and think maybe God has kind of put us in a special position. Yeah, I am. Okay. That's one I was going to bring up. But oftentimes we kind of think, well, we're Americans. And, and obviously America has been blessed. You know, there's no doubt about it. The fact that America is blessed. But the question is why we've we been blessed. Have we been blessed? Certainly not because we can talk straight. Have we been blessed? Because we're better than the other nations? You know, well, to be honest with you, most of us tend to think we are a little better than the rest of the nations, you know, don't we? Instinctively, that's the way we think. So the question just came, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, why were you born in America? Were you born in America because there was something better about you? And God just, okay, here's Joe Blow and... You know, and I just really think a lot, so I'm going to have him born in America because I just think a lot of him and I'm going to get... Is that why? I know why you were born in America. Because the Bible tells me why you were born in America. You know what it is? Paul says it in Acts chapter 17. You know why you were born in America? That you might seek him. You weren't born in America so that you could just enjoy all the blessings of America. 
Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God appoints the boundaries of our habitation in order that we might seek Him. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, oh, now I know why I was born in America. I was born in America because God knew that if I wasn't born in about the cushiest place on earth, I wouldn't seek Him. Now, that doesn't say a lot for me, does it? <laughs> I'm not like that. I'm afraid to... Yeah, yeah, that's about it. We couldn't hack it anywhere else, and God knew that we wouldn't seek Him unless He put us here. That's what that's that's the scriptural answer to why you were born in America. It wasn't because you were special. It wasn't because there was something special good about you, and God just thought, well, this person deserves a cushy life in America where there's freedom and wealth and and all the things that we have here. Uh, <laughs> I am, aren't I? And mine too. You know. Well, that's what Paul's doing to the Jews. He's just turning everything on the head. On the head. He says it's not because of all these things. So they come back with a retort. Well, are you nullifying the law? There in verse thirty-one. Do you nullify the law by these things? Then Paul is 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 the law of no significance? Is it of no meaning? Is it of no word? And what's Paul's answer? Okay. His argument is that far from nullifying the law, we're actually establishing the law. So the gospel doesn't make the law irrelevant and meaningless and purposeless. It actually establishes the law. It makes the law work for what the law was intended to do. What was the law intended to do? Okay, one of the things that what we've already learned, and we'll learn more about this, one of the things that law was intended to do was to show us that we're sinners. Now, why did we? Why did God want to show us we're sinners? So we'll turn to Him, right? So one of the purposes of the law was to show us that we're sinners, uh, and a, and a parallel purpose of the law, as we'll see as we go through Romans, is to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. So the gospel is actually the fulfillment or the establishment of the law. And not only that, is that as we, as we engage the gospel, as we come to Christ, as we are transformed by Him, as, as we receive that justification that comes by faith, the requirements of the law are met in Christ in our lives. So Paul's got three good reasons there why no the law doesn't you know we're not just nullifying the law we're not we don't consider the law unimportant we are actually pointing out that in the gospel the law does the very thing it was intended to do which was to point us to Christ to point out our sin to point us to Christ and then as we come to Christ the requirements of the law are met in him so we establish the law. Now, Paul's going to go on and, and he needs to show them that what he's telling them is not something new. This is really the way it's always been. Okay? And he needs to give them an illustration. He needs to give them an example from the Scripture, from the Old Testament Scriptures, that this is not some new idea he's concocted or he's come up with. But this is, a, this is the continuity issue we're talking about. That this is actually the way it has always been. 
And so whom does he choose as his illustration? He chooses Abraham. Now when Abraham chooses, excuse me, when Paul chooses Abraham as an illustration, he doesn't do it just kind of arbitrarily. He doesn't do it, oh, this would be a good guy to use as an example. He uses Abraham because he has to use Abraham. Because if he can't prove his point with Abraham, he's not going to prove his point to the Jew. The reason being, a couple reasons. One is, Abraham is the archetypical Jew. Okay? He's, he's kind of the ultimate Jew because he's the father of the Jews. So, if this principle doesn't work with Abraham, it does not work. Okay? So, that's one reason why he, you know, he, can't, he can't use anybody else. He's got to use Abraham. Now, he will use David here in a few verses, but only after he's begun to make his point with Abraham. And then he'll throw in David kind of as a bonus, okay? And for specific reasons with David. But, but he needs to use Abraham because Abraham's the archetypical Jew and he's the one that, uh, that all Jews look to. And so, he's got to, he's got to establish that. But there's another reason why he's got to use Abraham. Because Abraham is the basis for the Jews' specific belief that you are justified by works. You see, the Jews, our very argument, their very doctrine was you're justified by your works. And Abraham is our example of that. And in fact, the Jews considered Abraham to be so obedient to God that they actually believed, and this is in their writings, they actually believed that Abraham perfectly fulfilled all the law before it was written. And we'll make a big thing as we go through Romans chapter 4 about Abraham living before the law and the things that happened in his life before the law was given. And the Jews' answer to that was, well, yeah, but he just perfectly kept the law even before the law was given. So, we have two reasons why Paul has to go right to the root of the misunderstanding that the Jews have about this law and faith thing. And that root is Abraham. Because Abraham is the archetypical Jew. can't even say it. And he is one who was as perfectly obedient as any person could be. And so, all the promises that God gave to Abraham and that are being fulfilled through Abraham are because Abraham was so obedient to God. So, if Paul cannot prove his point with Abraham, he loses this argument. So, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Now, he's clearly speaking here to the Jew, our forefather, according to the flesh. Now, actually, some commentators debate a little bit about whether or not the, uh, uh, the phrase has found is a reference, uh, or excuse me, uh, the phrase according to the flesh is a reference to what Abraham found or to Abraham as forefather because of the syntax of the sentence in the Greek. Uh, but it seems pretty clear both to me from the syntax as well as from the context of the passage as a whole 
that clearly uh, the way it's translated in New American in most translations is that it's a reference to Abraham as our forefather. So it's not what did he find according to the flesh, but what did Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, find? That's the better understanding of the verse. Okay, and and so he's 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 putting an emphasis right here in this verse on Abraham as our forefather according to the flesh. And the reason that's important, we won't see it today in today's lesson, but the reason that's important is because pretty soon, pretty quick, next week, if we get that far, the verses we look at next week, we're going to understand that Abraham's not just the father of the Jews, but he's the father of some other people as well. Not according to the flesh, but according to some other means. Okay. So, but right now he's just starting off. He's just dealing with Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, because he's trying to he's trying to deal with this whole idea that God's dealt specially with the Jews, and and so they get saved a different way than everybody else gets saved. Okay. And so so it's Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. And what did he find? Well, he says. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Okay. So, so taking everybody back to Abraham, he says, now what, what does Abraham know? Let's figure out what does Abraham know. And this is what Abraham knows. If Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast of. This goes back to this idea of boasting that came up in verse 27 of chapter 3 that we looked at last week. You know. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what? A law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Okay. So this idea of boasting comes up again now in verse 2 of chapter 4. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Abraham, or excuse me, Paul's argument in verse 27 of chapter 3 was boasting is excluded. But it's not excluded by a principle of works. It has been excluded by a principle of faith. So if someone could be justified by their works, and in this case we're going to talk about Abraham, if someone could be justified by their works, they would have something to boast about. And then he says, but not before God. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is what is Paul suggesting that if Abraham were justified by works, there's somebody he could boast before? Uh, who, who would he boast before? Well, the only thing I can think of is each other, right? Other people, right? So, the question is, the question is, if justification by work is by works, can I boast before anybody? Yeah, that's his point. Yeah, if you can, if you can be justified by your works, you can boast. Then he says, but not before God. When he's saying that, he's not saying, well, Abraham, if he were justified by works, he could. He could boast before men, but he couldn't boast before God. That's not what Paul is saying here. What, what Paul is saying here, and, and actually the best way maybe to help you understand this verse, is to understand the phrase, but not before God, to understand that as not a reference to his boasting, but a reference to his justification. 
In other words, he says, if Abraham is justified by his works, he has something to boast about. But then when Paul adds the phrase, but not before God, what he's doing is he's just shooting the ground out from the whole previous sentence. Okay. He's shooting the ground out from the whole idea of justification by faith. So it's not that he's saying, uh, not that he's saying, well, if you got works good enough, then you can boast to people, but you just can't boast to God. Because the emphasis isn't on Abraham's works here. The emphasis is on Abraham's justification by his works. And there is no such thing. Now, remember, we're not talking here about justification before men. When we get into James, you know, you talk about James and about Abraham was justified by his works. Okay, that's a reference to man being justified in the eyes of man. But Paul here is talking about justification in the eyes of God, being made righteous in the eyes of God. And he says, if Abraham can be justified in the eyes of God by works, he has something to boast about. And then Paul says, but not before God, meaning there is no justification before God on the basis of works. So, he, he puts a hypothetical up there of being justified by works, and he just says, but there is no such thing. So, yeah, if you were justified by your works, you could boast. But there is no justification before God by works. No man can be made righteous in the eyes of God by living a good life. It just can't be done. So boasting is excluded. There is no boasting. And then he goes on in the next verse. And he says, For what does Scripture say? And, and so he's, he's proving his point from Scripture. And, and one of the things he's doing here, remember the Jew thinks, okay, Abraham just is really good at obeying God. He's just really good at it. And he's so good at it that he obeyed the law before the law was even given. Okay. Now the problem is, there's no Scripture for that. Paul says, what does Scripture say? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? When you're in a debate with somebody about something, about spiritual things, the real question we ought to be asking ourselves is what does Scripture say? And that's what Abraham does here. Uh, excuse me, Paul does. Probably Abraham too, but Paul particularly. Paul says, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? Pardon? Go ahead. Okay. He quotes specifically Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Okay. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on here for a second. For those of you who were around, lo, those eons ago, when we studied Genesis 15, about three years ago, when we studied Genesis 15, let's remember the story. Okay. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, had been called by God to leave the land of Haran and to go to a land I'll show you when you get there type of deal. Okay. <clears throat> and he gave him a promise before he ever left Haran. Do you remember what that promise was? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, if you want to cheat. 
Okay, promise to go with him. What else? Okay, make him a great nation. What else? Well, uh, not in those words, but it has that idea. He says, he says, in you, he says, I'm going to give you descendants like, like Skadzooks of descendants, you know. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's before he leaves Herod. God says, in you, all the families of the earth. What's our reference to? Yeah, but what's... It's a reference to Christ, yeah. That in Christ, all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's the promise he's given. So he goes wandering off to Canaan and it's all very cool and he wanders around in Canaan for a while and he goes down to Egypt and he comes back into Canaan and he has the whole thing with Lot where Lot goes off and picks this part of the land and Abraham gets all this and God comes to him and says, I'm going to give all this stuff to you. And he does all this and then there's the whole thing with the war of the kings and Lot gets carried off and Abraham goes chasing and defeats the five kings and he brings them back and he offers the offering to Melchizedek, the high priest. And all this stuff is going on, remember. And then he gets to chapter 15 and God comes to him again. And, and in, in Genesis chapter 15, God says uh, in verse 1, let me get over there so I get it right. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, God comes to him again and he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you and your reward will be very great. Okay, so God's just kind of saying, okay, everything's cool with us, Abraham. Now, he's been there for a while. I don't know how long he's been there for a while. He's established himself. He's got a reputation. But what doesn't he have? He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have any descendants. And there are none on the horizon. And this is, you know, I don't know, maybe five, ten years after he's come to Canaan. He left Haran when he was 75, so maybe he's 85 now. This is still 10, 15 years before he gets a concrete promise of the Son. Okay. And this is 15 years before circumcision, which will become important in the verses that follow. Okay. But Abraham's going, okay, God, now, I know you've promised this stuff, and I got this promise from back there 10, 15 years ago before I left Haran. But he says in verse 2, he says, Abraham, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, since you, have, since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but, you will come, but uh, one will come forth from your own body and he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look out toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, he said, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's the verse that Paul quotes. So let's, let's think about that context. Paul is saying that Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned that to him as righteousness. 
So what's going on there is Abraham's struggling a little with this promise that God gave him earlier. And he's going, okay, Lord, I've been hanging around for a long time and I still not see anything. I need, I need something more. Okay. And so God gives him the promise again. And it says he believed God. And then, of course, you remember chapter 15. It's a, really a, it's a watershed chapter in the whole story of redemption. And that's the story where and he goes on through that, that whole encounter with God and he gets down and then God does the whole covenant thing with the splitting of the animals and all. That's the end of chapter 15. So God actually enters into this covenant with Abraham. Okay, But all that comes after it says Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay. And Abraham, or Paul says, now that's the verse we need to look at. That's the pivotal point in the life of Abraham. Now I don't know, if, I don't know if Abraham, you know, if that's the point Abraham was saved. If you want to use those words, you know, but but this is clearly, theologically speaking, this is the pivotal point that Abraham believed God, and God reckoned him as righteous, clearly as a result of what his faith, not his works. That's what Paul's saying. There's nothing about works here. There's no circumcision here. There's no sacrifice of Isaac here. There's none of that stuff. All we got here is a promise from God. And Abraham is claiming that promise and by extension claiming the promise of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise of the Christ. And he is believing that. And because he is believing God, and he's believing the faithfulness of God, and he's throwing himself completely upon God and God's faithfulness, God reckons him righteous. Now, when Paul uses that in Romans chapter 4, go back to Romans chapter 4, when Paul uses that word, he uses a Greek word there that's translated here in the text, credit. And this word, credit, or the idea, the Greek word here, comes up, five times in these verses that we've looked at this morning. It comes up in verse 3, it comes up in verse 4, it comes up in verse 5, it comes up in verse 6, and it comes up in verse 8. You don't see it in verse 8 because it's translated differently. But it comes up five times. This idea of credit is central to this passage which is central to our theology of salvation. If we don't understand the idea of, of credit, now, we go, I know credit. <laughs> you know, I got right here in my pocket on a piece of plastic. That's all we're talking about, okay? But if we don't understand this idea of credit, we don't understand salvation. Because <coughs> this is central. Paul says over and over again, he talks about the idea of crediting righteousness. What does that mean? It means that God assigns to our account something based on something which is different than that thing. In other words, he says there in verse 3, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him or reckoned it to him as righteousness. So one of the things we learn is the thing we learned last week. We learn it again here. That faith is different than righteousness. Faith is not a work. Because if faith was righteousness, it wouldn't have to be credited, right? He says it's credited as righteousness. Well, if it was righteousness, it wouldn't 
you would, you know, it would just be righteousness. You know? So we just say, well, okay, Abraham was righteous because he believed. But that's not what it says. It says Abraham believed and God reckoned or credited that faith, which is not a work, which is not righteousness. He credited that faith as righteousness. And then he goes on to describe how this process, this process of accreditation, if you will, <laughs> works. And that is in verse 4. He says, Now the, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So if somebody works and then he gets a wage, that wage is not a favor he gets. When your boss hands you your paycheck, you really don't have to say thank you. I mean, it's probably a polite thing to do, but you don't have to. Why? Because he owes it to you. Right? Remember the whole story uh, last year, about this time, I started that really big job. Uh, I had you guys pray about it because it was kind of a really big, challenging job, and I did that really big job. And, uh, and it lasted for, for a number of weeks, and you know, I got paid periodically. But when it came time for the final $4,000, nearly $4,000 paycheck, the guy never paid me. Remember that? Okay. Well, I still haven't been paid, by the way. But, you know, I just said that so you feel sorry for me. Okay. But at any rate, I never got paid. Now, that nearly $4,000 check is not a favor. I wish this guy would just, you know, I wish this guy would be nice to me and just do me a favor. He's obligated, right? You know, I'll never see the $4,000, but, uh, but he's obligated. It's due to me, right? So when he gives it to me, I'm not going to go, well, thank you for such a kind gesture. Right? Because it's due to me. And so is your paycheck every week that you get, hopefully. You know, or whenever you get it. It's due to you. Because you've invested in that person and you've given that person or that company your time and your energies and your understanding and they owe it to you. But God does not owe you flip. God is never obligated to us. Now, we talk about God being obligated, but the only sense in which God is obligated to us is out of His own character and goodness and grace. God does the things He does for us because He is God. Not because there's anything in us that merits. Okay. So he says, it's not considered a favor when you get paid your paycheck. And the word favor, the Greek word, is the same word that's translated in other places in the New Testament, grace. It's not considered grace when you get a paycheck. And I really wouldn't want to work for an employer who thought every time he was giving me my paycheck that he was giving me grace. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't want that kind of relationship with an employer. You know? I want to know, I want him to know he owes me. He's obligated to me if I've done this. So the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as grace, but as what is an obligation or a debt or due. But powerful three words, four words, whatever it is. The one who does not work but beliefs. Here again, faith is not a work. Very clear. The one who does not work, but in contrast to working, believes 
in God who justifies the ungodly, uh, in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. So we have a scenario of somebody who has not done any work. Now, we're not suggesting here, you know, that, you know, this whole idea of salvation by faith and you get saved by faith and you never do anything good. Or, and it's not that Paul is decrying or denying the value of good works or, the, or, or, or that, that we were saved in order to do good works. That's clearly all very taught in Scripture. But, but what we're talking here is how does a person get right with God? And he doesn't get right with God by doing right. He gets right with God by faith. Because God justifies the ungodly. And so the one who does not work, but instead of working, believes in the God who justifies ungodly people, that person is credited with righteousness. So I suddenly have this account to which has been accredited all these righteous deeds. And as we go on in the New Testament, we learn that the righteousness of Christ and that sort of thing. All that's been put on my account. But not because I did anything good, but rather because I simply cast myself completely on a God who justifies the ungodly through the propitiation of His Son on the cross. Well, we're out of time again. We did make some progress. We'll pick it up in verse 6 and we'll look at the example of David next week and then we'll go on into the verses that you have on your study sheet for next week.